Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast will be talking to an architect of Joe Biden's uh, election victory, one of his most important advisors, uh, to get a sense of, of what this transition is really looking like and President-elect's vision uh, for his first days in office. But before we get to all of that, here we are again. It, it, it keeps getting stranger and crazier, the stuff that is emanating uh, from the uh, outgoing president and uh, his uh, merry team of advisors. Um, some, of the, some of the language uh, has gotten... Uh, not just crazy and conspiratorial, but downright dangerous. Uh, I, I want to play something um, that was said by uh, uh, one of one of his legal advisors, uh, Joe DeGeneva, somebody, frankly, Rick, that you and I have known for years. Um, Washington lawyer. He was there with Rudy Giuliani. We had him on the podcast once, matter of fact. That's right. Yes. Uh, he is, uh, you know, he was there at the at, at, at the the famous Giuliani press conference with the uh, the hair dye streaming down the sides of his face, uh, talking about uh, Hugo Chavez and George Soros and the Clinton Foundation and the vast uh, conspiracy to steal the election. That crazy unhinged press conference at Republican National uh, Committee headquarters. Geneva was there, uh, introduced as part of the legal team. But listen to what he had to say in a radio interview on Monday about Christopher Krebs, uh, who was the top cybersecurity official in the Trump Department of Homeland Security and whose sin in the eyes of the deranged uh, was to come out after the election and say uh, that the election was clean, uh, that, 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 that they had successfully fended off any uh, efforts to, um, to to engage in any kind of a, of a cyber attack on the on the election. The election was uh, was not tainted in any such way. Uh, and then Krebs, of course, was famously fired by the president uh, via tweet uh, for, for for making that statement. But listen to what Joe DeGeneva said on Monday. Anybody who thinks that this election went well, like that idiot Krebs. Who used to be the head of cyber oh, security. Oh, yeah, the guy that was on 60 Minutes guy, last night. That guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. Okay, so that is a legal advisor to the president calling for somebody to be murdered. Uh, it, it's, it's not a joke. He wasn't joking. Even if he was, it would be outrageous. But, Rick, I, I, I want to also play... Because this is not something that's limited to uh, to, to Christopher Krebs, uh, we are we are seeing local officials involved in the certification of an election, a routine and sacred duty. Uh, we are seeing local officials also facing very real death threats, and I want to play for our listeners a an extended clip that you may have heard in you know, some, of the, some of the coverage, uh, some of the news coverage over the last couple of days. But I, I want to play a longer segment of a clip uh, of, of, a, of a statement that was made by Gabriel Sterling. This is uh, a member of um, the Secretary of State's team in the state of Georgia. Gabriel Sterling is a Republican. 
Uh, he is involved in the, you know, administering the election down there in Georgia. And I want you to hear in his voice, not, not only what he says, they're powerful words, but hear in his voice just how concerned he is about the ramifications of the crazy rhetoric that we are hearing from the president himself and those around him. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. So that was on Tuesday um, in Atlanta. And then we heard uh, uh, today, Wednesday, um, from the Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger, also somebody who has been on this podcast and somebody who I think, even though he is merely doing his job by going through the process of holding an election, having a hand uh, uh, recount, a machine recount, uh, doing everything by the book, he's just doing his job. But I think he will be truly remembered um, when, this is, when the history of this era is finally written as, as a profile on courage. He's a Republican. He's somebody who was endorsed by Donald Trump, who endorsed Donald Trump, who voted for Donald Trump, and he is doing his job. So here's what Brad Raffensperger had to say about what his colleague, his fellow Republican, uh, Gabriel Sterling, said in that, in that vivid warning about the potential violence that could come out of what, of what we're hearing said by the president and his team. Even after this office request that President Trump try and quell the violent rhetoric being born out of his continuing claims of winning the states where he obviously lost, he tweeted out, expose the massive voter fraud in Georgia. This is exactly the kind of language that is at the base of growing threat environment for election workers who are simply doing their jobs. Raffensperger is a soft-spoken guy. He is a public official. Again, he is a Republican. And you can hear in his voice how concerned they are about this because you hear emanating from the most powerful office in the land uh, allegations that, 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 that an election has been stolen. And it's, it's all done in the service of an effort to actually steal the election, actually trying to get these local Republican officials uh, to, to undo the results of, of, of a duly held election. And Rick, I have one more piece of sound that I want to play. It's a short one. Um, it's from an interview that the president did. It's actually the only interview he, is, he has done uh, since the election with, with Maria Bartiromo um, uh, of Fox Business. And he, it was a call-in. It was one of the most, it was, it was a, frankly, it was a, a crazy interview that lasted 45 minutes. I'm only going to play six seconds of it. Um, I don't know if it's responsible to play. Uh, uh, more than that, but but uh, this is where the president actually suggests that perhaps the Department of Justice under Attorney General Bill Barr 
might not only be uh, looking the other way uh, about this terrible theft of an American election, but might actually be involved in the theft itself. Take a listen to this. This is total fraud. And how the FBI and Department of Justice, I don't know, maybe they're involved. Maybe they're involved. I mean, come on. And John, we should point out, it's not working. The attempted theft is not working. But think about the scenario that President Trump has imposed on Republicans and that most Republicans are now willing to accept the construct of. If you believe President Trump and what he is saying, you have now been betrayed by the Attorney General, Bill Barr, um, after having been betrayed by Jeff Sessions, of course, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, you've now been betrayed by Republican officials, uh, including the governor in, uh, in, in a couple of deep red states, uh, or previously deep red states, I should say, Georgia and Arizona. Uh, dozens or hundreds of state local election officials, dozens of judges at the state and federal level. So that's what, the, what President Trump is, is is claiming. And if you are not recognizing Joe Biden as president-elect, you're buying into that, at least in part. If you're not buying into that, you are potentially sacrificing your future with the Republican Party or much worse because of these threats of violence that we've heard on. And so we talk a lot about this and we've talked at, at nauseum in the last four years about whether you take the president's word seriously or literally and what his supporters think and what he really thinks. And people around him really think, this is where it matters. This is where the the actual rubber of rhetoric meets the road of reality, is that there's a lot of people out there who believe this. And uh, when the president says it, as forthrightly as he does, and he has his lawyers say it in the matters that they do, we can and do laugh at times at, at how uh, almost Keystone Cops silly, silly that the team is in, in trying to get things done and the, the hair dye running down Giuliani's face and the Four Seasons uh, in Philadelphia. But the fact is it has an impact. And that's what you're hearing now from, from state and local officials as they go through the process of basically just doing their jobs, uh, certifying that a candidate won an election because he got more votes. Now, Donald Trump feels he needs to do this uh, based on my, my read of, of how he operates and has operated for decades. He feels he needs to do this because he has built a brand based on winning, the perception of winning. He believes that people follow him and flock to him because he has built a brand as the ultimate winner. And the fear is that if he appears as a loser – it all crumbles. This was how he operated. Even when he was going through his bankruptcies, he had to keep up appearances. So I think that the result here, though, I, I think he's squandering what he has built. Because he got 74 plus million votes. He won the overwhelming majority of Republican votes in the country. He, he's dominated the Republican Party in a way, you know, to, to a degree beyond even, frankly, what, what Ronald Reagan, the support Ronald Reagan had uh, uh, at his height. I mean, the, the, the loyalty of the rank and file Republicans to Donald Trump has been, has been a, a, a sight to behold. But what's happened now? He's gone out and he's lashed out and he's attacked Republicans like Raffensperger, the Secretary of State uh, in Georgia. Uh, the the governor of Georgia, uh, Brian Kemp, uh, he's uh, lashed out at Governor Ducey in Arizona. And these people have responded by continuing to do their jobs and certifying an election. 
And the question, John, the question that I have for Republicans is, is you know, when we talk about what the future of the party looks like, does this hold maintain? Uh, we, we, all, we can expect, and we've seen already the MAGA forces have, have gone on the attack against Governors Kemp and Ducey, and uh, they're taking the president's cues. But on the other side of this, because there will be another side, and Joe Biden will be president uh, after January 20th, does he maintain that same uh, that that same power over the party. I mean, how how can it be, John, that Mitch McConnell, that Kevin McCarthy, still have not referred to to President-elect Joe Biden as President-elect? Uh, and, and can that kind of stance of taking cues from President Trump maintain itself when he is ex-President Trump, albeit with a big Twitter microphone? Uh, can can that hold continue? After January 20th. So uh, I know there's a vigorous debate on this. I think that uh, it doesn't hold. I'm going to say it. I think that it could have. But the way the way Donald Trump has gone down here, not just as a loser, he still could have gone with that if he had been some degree of graciousness, vowed to come back in four years, whether or not he really does. He, he, he could have gone down to Mar-a-Lago and played kingmaker in the upcoming midterm elections. Instead, he is torching everybody around him. And it is looking bad on every level. Uh, it, it, the, the loss in the election is compounded by the ridiculous uh, legal challenges and, 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 and losses in courts, uh, admonished by, uh, by conservative judges. Um, it, 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 it all looks bad. And right now, the McConnells and the McCarthys are still treating um, the president with, with kid gloves. They're, they're walking on eggshells because they don't want him to you know, behave rashly. Uh, they, say, they all say privately, trust me, that, oh, he'll get there. You know, um, you know, you just, 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 just basically let him kind of sound off. Uh, but, but once he's gone, they're not going to listen to him. I really don't. I, I, I think that he has torched what he has built. I, I, you may disagree with me on this. Others certainly do. But I, I think that this is a pathetic end to something that did not have to end pathetically. Well, the, 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 you know, he, the, there shouldn't be surprise for people around him that he does this. And that really what matters is the, uh, the, the, the loyalty above all else, because he has put now loyalty to his own brand, to the presidency and to, to President Trump in particular, above everything else. And there, you know, we've long said that the party is the Trump party and it's uh, rebranded itself ideologically around things that President Trump is for. Um, the power that he continues to have of uh, of continuing to have his his supporters believe him, maybe that evaporates with the end of this moment. Maybe it doesn't. I I I feel, I think you are you're going a little further than I would in in, in making a bold prediction like that. Um, I do think parties don't like losers, and he's lost, and uh, there'll be there'll, there will be another another side to all of this. In the meantime, though, it is as strange as strange can be, John, to know that there is a full fledged transition going on. And there, uh, the state certifications are ongoing. The lawsuits are getting dismissed. The Electoral College will convene uh, in the 50 states plus D.C. in 12 days' time. Uh, it will make Joe Biden again formally, this time, president-elect. Congress will convene, accept those votes first week in January. Uh, all of that's happening even while the president – uh, the, the sitting president uh, says that this is the biggest fraud ever and that, uh, and that he actually won the election, which is not, not, not the case.
he's showing himself to be a loser, to be a sore loser, and to also be impotent, unable to to stop any of it. Uh, not even his own attorney general uh, uh, will, will, will agree will agree with him on this. All right, look, Rick, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's actually talk about the president-elect <laughs> instead of the uh, instead of the outgoing president. We'll be back uh, in just a minute with Anita Dunn. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Anita Dunn, a longtime friend of the podcast, a senior advisor, a strategic advisor, I would say one of the architects of the Biden campaign, uh, also obviously a, a, a veteran of, of many other uh, Democratic White Houses and somebody that I think Bill, I think that Rick and I got to know back in the Bill Bradley days. So, uh, so we go back a ways. Thank you for joining us, Anita. Okay, that dates all of us. Okay, <laughs> it, it does. It does. So, so I, I want to. I wanted to start out by asking you about Joe Biden's kind of state of mind during this strangest of transitional periods. We uh, we have the president doing what he's doing um, in terms of trying to undermine basically the entire democratic process. Uh, we have a transition that obviously got started late. A lot of people really concerned uh, uh, about this. I think that we, we made a comment here on the podcast uh, a week or two ago that the person in the country that seems least concerned about the president's antics is Joe Biden. He seems blissful, <laughs> moving ahead, preparing uh, uh, to, to, to take office on January 20th. Is he? Is he? I mean, what? What? Am I misreading that? What? 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 What is? He, how does he view all of this? Well, I don't think it was any secret that um, President Trump might cause this kind of trouble during the transition, since he continually announced throughout his campaign that he was not going to concede and that he, um, he didn't expect to lose, and if he'd lost, it would be because the election had been stolen. So, it was obviously something the transition had prepared for, and I give a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of credit to the people who were running the transition that it has been just a seamless process, even without the GSA ascertainment that um, most transitions get really as soon as the race gets called. We have moved forward. And I would say that President-elect Biden, you know, is someone who is going to be ready day one and is putting together a team that is going to be ready day one. So we didn't we didn't feel we lost as much time as some others might have because we were ready to go with the transition. And it's actually become a bit of a joke within within the staff, you know, when we do our kind of daily wrap-up calls. And, you know, the reality is that every day we've won again in some place, right? So we're the campaign that keeps winning and winning and winning and winning and winning because the other side won't concede they lost. Uh, Joe Biden is ready to be president. He's putting together a team that's ready to govern and help him govern. And, you know, he is just, you know, straightforward. Let's move forward. Let's get this done. And so he's spending time on policy briefings. He's spending time on personnel briefings. And he's spending time preparing to hit the ground running, even with a boot. <laughs> yeah, hit, hit the ground running with a, with a fractured foot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, you, you've just you've announced your communications team or the vice president. President-elect has announced yes. his, his communications team. 
Uh, Jen Psaki in, in the role of, of press secretary, somebody we know very well, uh, you know, back in her role as a campaign spokesperson in 2008 and uh, at, at the State Department, of course, in the White House. Um, what, what is your vision uh, of, and, and what, is, what is Joe Biden's vision of that role? Because we've seen it, frankly, kind of abused over the past four years. Uh, we've seen the, the, the White House podium turned into, um, you know, kind of a, a platform for political speeches, uh, serial telling of things that are not true. We've seen televised briefings disappear for long periods of time. Are there going to be daily briefings? And, and what, is, what is the role of the press secretary in, in a Biden administration? Those of us who have worked in previous administrations were, you know, have, have only been able to watch this White House press office and this White House communications director job you know, with some level of befuddlement and, and wonder throughout the four years. I can't think of a person who wouldn't have been fired based on the way they had behaved in any normal administration. It is certainly President-elect Biden's intention to to use that White House press office and the White House um, briefings as a way to restore the confidence and credibility that people need to have in their government. So I think that if you look at just even something as small as um, the president-elect spraining his ankle this weekend, um, you mentioned the hairline fracture, you know, the, a level of transparency that you never saw from this White House around health issues. And this was a very, very minor health issue. So with a dog as a culprit, you know, the person who stands behind that podium is speaking not for any candidate, not for any particular person, but they are speaking for the United States government. When the president speaks, he is speaking for the United States of America. When White House staff speak, they are speaking on behalf of the president. And those are serious things. I think restoring the credibility of the White House and of the White House press secretary is something we all feel very strongly. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited that Jen Psaki agreed to um, you know, suit up and, and take the playing field and agreed to do this at the beginning of this administration because she does have experience and she's an excellent spokesperson. But she also shares President-elect Biden's belief that this is you know, part of the face of America to the world and that we have to have someone who believes in transparency and credibility. So will there be daily briefings? There will be some kind of briefing. I think we all know that the briefings can be improved, that we can try some innovations, but we're committed to making sure that um, what you hear and what the American people hear in that White House press room, and it reflects what President-elect Biden wants to do as president, which is restore our, our credibility both with um, the people of the United States and around the world. And, and, and as you know, although it's nothing like what we've seen over the last four years, so I don't want to pretend that there's some kind of a, you know, the, 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 these, are, these are equal, but, but there were concerns about the Obama press operation and, and, and the George W. Bush press operation of trying to find ways to circumvent the, uh, the, the traditional news organizations and developing you know, their own ways of speaking directly to the American people, that that sounds like a good thing, but it also can sound a little bit like state television. Um, and so, so I, I'm just, one, one, one more question on this is, is do, you, do you envision 
President-elect Biden having a, a similar approach, trying to find ways to go around uh, the reporters uh, with, the, with, the, with the major news organizations and may ask uncomfortable questions from time to time. Um, uh, will, will he directly engage? Will we see, will we see you know, a President Biden holding regular press conferences with the White House press corps? I think that there is no issue where um, people have less perspective than, than on this issue of the value of, um, you know, of speaking directly to the American people. Of course, you have to be able to do that, but you also need to take seriously the role of the White House press corps. You know, since um, Barack Obama became president, I well remember in 2009, you know, Twitter was in its infancy that um, Facebook was something that wasn't allowed on White House computers when we first got to the White House. We had to do workarounds. That, that social media was in its infancy. Now it's obviously a place where so many people turn to get information, and it's a place where you have to take those platforms seriously. In addition to that, obviously, the production, production of content by um, government officials in a way that helps get the message out is going to continue. But again, President-elect Biden takes the role of the press very seriously. You saw that during his campaign. He took a lot of questions during his campaign from both national media and local media. He uh, obviously, you know, the staff took a lot of questions that we were out there a lot and he was out there a lot. And I think that as president, you know, he is committed to making sure that his administration, again, rebuilds credibility. So there will be communication directly with the American people because, of course, that is what they expect now. It's what everyone expects. But the role of the White House press corps and the people covering the White House is a critically important one. And he recognizes that. Anita, as we've referenced a couple times, this is not your first time uh, through a transition. Uh, you've been around White House, has been around transitions before. I'm curious your take on the pace of the of the Biden transition. Um, vis-a-vis others that you've watched. Uh, we know that this it took the GSA a good while to, to certify uh, that, that, uh, that Biden was the apparent winner. We know that the president hasn't conceded. But uh, a, month, a month into the transition, a month after the election, where do you handicap the pace? Are, are there some areas where you think uh, the, the Biden team is falling behind because the way that Trump's handled it? Are there areas that you feel like you're ahead of schedule because you've got a lot of institutional knowledge? I think that we feel that we're right on schedule. That, again, the fact that the GSA didn't ascertain, didn't, didn't give us our, our space or anything else, didn't keep us from having a transition. This transition began in the late spring. They have been working all summer that the, they were ready to give the president-elect slates of people to look at, both in terms of staff as well as um, potential cabinet officials and, and number two in a lot of these agencies. So we feel that we're, we are on target and what we're very confident of is that at the end of this process, people are going to look at the cabinet, at the White House staff, at the administration, and see that President-elect Biden kept the commitment he made during the campaign to have a diverse group of people who reflect the diversity of America. And we're very, we're confident about that. And I think he, he made that commitment and he's proud he's keeping that commitment. A couple of days after the election, President Obama's book came out, and I've been reading it, and uh, you know the stories better than I do. But one one recurring theme of uh, of President Obama's new book is that 
I'd say not that he not that he thinks it was a mistake to believe that Republicans would come along with some of his ideas, but that he thought he, he thought maybe maybe the, he was overestimating his his simple powers of persuasion in the face of of, of very strong political opposition. The political headwinds have only gotten stronger uh, in the last twelve years. I think we can agree with that. Uh, I, I'm struck though that that Vice President Biden seems to be confident, at least publicly, that he can turn things around, talking about the, the, the ability to negotiate with Mitch McConnell in good faith. What makes you think he's not about to make the same kind of mistakes that Obama concedes that he made in terms of trying to, to reach out to, a, to the other side, trying to find a common ground, when you've got Republicans on the Hill who still won't even call him president-elect? I think he's very clear-eyed about the challenges facing him, but he's also very clear-eyed about the fact that there are some issues where um, potentially he'll be able to come to an agreement, a compromise. And there's some issues where, as he said during the campaign, he's just going to have to fight them. Uh, That is always the case. I think that his legislative background and his his, um, level of um, trust and relationships that he has still, and the respect he has for members of the Senate, members of the House, is a critical aspect of how he's going to approach being able to deal with Congress. But he's he he's very realistic. There are issues where they're not going to agree and they will not be able to find common ground. But he also believes that you gotta try. You have to try, and the American people need to see that you have tried. And and that is his intention. And he thinks he can do it. And he has a track record of being able to do it both in the Senate and then as vice president. We've, we've reported that uh, the transition is going to be meeting at some point uh, in the coming week with Christopher Ray, the uh, FBI director. Uh, you, you may remember, but uh, uh, the, uh, la- the current president, the outgoing president, actually fired the FBI director uh, in, in, his, in his first year. Uh, but the FBI director, of course, serves a 10-year term, uh, can be fired, as we saw. <laughs> Obviously, uh, with with Comey, what 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 is what is uh, President-elect Biden's uh, uh, approach to this? Does he intend to keep on Chris Ray as FBI director? I'm just not going to comment on issues where he has not spoken to them publicly, um, and and as a transition, you know, we have not made any kind of announcements of that kind. So I'm just not going to get ahead of the president-elect on this one. Well, 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 let me give you one that maybe you would, you would love to get on, on, on the record. Give us a little bit of a sense. I, I, I've been, I was up on Capitol Hill uh, uh, just a short while ago. I saw the inaugural platform is being built. Of course, the, uh, the reviewing stands in front of the White House are being uh, built for the, uh, the inaugural parade. What is this inauguration going to look like? It's obviously the first time we have had a presidential inauguration in the midst of a pandemic. Are we going to see big crowds on the West Front uh, of the Capitol? Is there going to be, is this going to look like previous inaugurations, perhaps a little extra social distancing? What, what, what are we in store for? What's in store for, for us here? Well, we've been, um, we've been talking with the um, um, Chairman Blunt and Senator Klobuchar and the, and the committee that has the responsibility for putting on the inaugural in Congress. And obviously, given the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, that the predictions for January are certainly not any better. And in many ways, and many doctors and our own doctors believe things may very well be worse. That as has been true since March, you know, as a campaign, we lived with public health restrictions. We restricted ourselves 
as a transition. We have been following those guidelines. And obviously, we're going to work with Congress to have an inaugural that is, um, that is safe, that does not put anybody in jeopardy to the extent we can control that, that is, and, and that is appropriate for the middle of a pandemic. So what that ends up looking like hasn't been quite settled yet. But I think it is fair to say that, as was the case with our convention, as was the case with our election night, it will not look like a traditional inaugural in all aspects. Okay, well, and Anita, we, we know you have to go. Uh, before you do, one last personnel question that you can definitely <laughs> answer and nobody can answer better than you. That's scary. Uh, are we going to see Anita... Are we going to see Anita Dunn in the uh, coming to the White House? Uh, you know, I fully plan to be there at the Easter egg roll with my grandchildren. Yes. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe right. if the pandemic is under control by next December, a Christmas party or two. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. We will look for you. We hope you come back and, and talk to us again soon. Thanks a lot. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Anita. Bye. All right, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Uh, for Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, Rick Klein, and the entire Powerhouse Politics team, thank you for listening. We will be back next week.